It's the Deadline Junkies podcast with your hosts, Jordan Emiola, Kirsten Porter, and Rand Shammy. Our guest today is Lindsay Rosen, executive story editor on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and writer of Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical, and Death is My BFF. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so much. So nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, thank you for doing this. Um, so could you talk about your journey to becoming a writer? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a big question. Um, but yes, I guess the shortest possible answer is I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I feel like that might be a universal thing. A lot of writers sort of grow up, you know, wanting to tell stories. And I did from a young age. And I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm um, third generation LA native. My I have a one-year-old daughter and she's fourth generation, which I'm pretty proud of considering, you know, there's not a lot of uh, people that have stuck it out in this, lo- this long in this city. So growing up here and around the industry and my parents are writers, I think it was just sort of, it seemed like a a very normal sort of viable profession. I realize more and more as I work at it, <laughs> how crazy the industry is and you know, what a, what a pipe dream it really is. But um, been, been something that I've just always thought I wanted to do. And in the real sort of beginning for me started in theater. And I like think of myself as a theater kid and I uh, went to Harvard Westlake High School um, and in, um, at the upper school, there's a one act play festival and they really encourage students to write their own plays. And that was where I started writing. And I'd written some stuff at the middle school um, in, in theater, different theater productions, but it was really the one act festival where I got to you know, write a one act play, get it put up on stage in front of an audience, have people respond. And that was the first time that anyone, you know, besides my parents <laughs> said that something I'd written was, you know, worth watching. And so that was kind of the beginning um, of, and I love the immediacy of it. I think today now, you know, if someone has an idea, it's so easy to film it on your iPhone and put it up on YouTube, but that was just not, the technology was not quite there, um, for my middle school, high school years. So being the immediacy of theater, which was, I guess, wasn't even that immediate considering how long you work on a piece of theater, but it still was that you were able to get sort of feedback, um, pretty quickly. So I knew I wanted to write from, from that age. Um, and I went to college, um, University of Pennsylvania, knowing that I wanted to come back to the um, to, to Los Angeles when I was older. And I was an English major and a dramatic writing minor. And I was in a spoken word poetry group, um, the Axolotl Project, which was a really fun thing to do. And I don't consider myself a performer at all, but um, I love the Axolotl Project's kind of like a family. And it was a great place for me to hone some of my writing skills. And the fact that I had to perform the stuff I wrote when I wrote a poem, I think it was an incredible background that I still pull from now because when you're up on stage reading a poem, you really think about, is every word necessary? Do I need all of these pieces? And I think that that was really good um, uh, learning ground for me um, to really understand every word is important. And so sort of that theater piece and that poetry piece kind of led me to, um, I started writing TV scripts. And so um, being from out from Los Angeles and sort of knowing a lot of people in the industry, I was able, I wrote a script in college actually. So I was still in college. Um, and I wrote a TV pilot called Honestly, which is a script that I remember because it's it's what got me my first agent. It's what started getting me my first general meetings. And, you know, just to speak as sort of on, honestly as I can to people who are fans of the industry or trying to break in the industry, like it does, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, 
certainly helps, right? Like there are many, many talented writers that come here and make their own connections and build extraordinary careers. But growing up here, you know, you do, you just know people, you know, people that you can give your script to. And I think like, I don't want to pretend that that wasn't a way that helped open doors for me early. I think I'd like to think that I've, you know, been able to prove myself, you know, on my own merit at this point, but I I just don't, I want to be truthful that it, it does help to be able to, you know, send an email to a friend of a friend or a friend's parent or somebody in the industry and say, hey, can you read this? Because it's a friendly, warm read. So I was very fortunate. And that's, I think, how I was really able to start working professionally so young, because I did sell my first TV pilot at age 22 to what was then ABC Family and is now Freeform. But at the time, it was ABC Family. And I sold, I had a general meeting off of that Honestly script, which I wrote like in my dorm room at college. And we were talking about what they wanted to be working on and what sort of shows they were looking for. And they said they wanted to do something about summer camp. And so I was a camp, I am a camp kid. I was a camp kid. And I actually met at the time, my boyfriend, who is now my husband, we've been married for 11 years, but at the time we had just been dating a couple years. And I was like, Oh, I met my husband at summer camp. Like would love to do a show about that. And so I came back a few weeks later and I pitched them a show about counselors at summer camp. And I think, and they ended up buying it um, off, off a pitch. That was, you know, that was my like one for one batting a thousand. If they were, if it was all that easy, <laughs> um, I feel like I would have a lot more credits to, to tell you about, but that was the beginning of, of my, you know, professional career. And I got to join the Writers Guild and that was right before the, um, the strike in 2007. So I literally sold a pilot in, you know, the summer of 2007, by the time the deal making had closed and all the particulars and I was about to start writing, it was literally October, you know, 29th and the strike started October 31st. So I sort of had like an entire microcosm of a career very quickly, like, like some success and then a strike and all the things. And that was a really hard time. Um, as I'm sure you remember, just in the industry, things were shifting. A lot of the streaming services, you know, Netflix at the, like Netflix wasn't Netflix at the time. I think they were still sending DVDs in the mail in, you know, 2007, but that was what the strike was about, all the streaming platforms that were coming. And so, you know, it was, it was tough to try to start at that moment in time. Um, but, um, you know, the, everyone gets sort of the, the time that, 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 you know, every, every year is hard. So that was what was hard about my first few years. And that pilot, and I did finish the pilot after the strike, but that didn't end up going forward. And so off of that, I was very fortunate to be able to stay in development. So I was able to develop um, many pilots that you've never heard of, um, some of which sold, some of which didn't. And I would say, you know, I, I also had some other jobs. It's like I'd work, you know, part-time jobs and was just, you know, trying to continue to develop and continue to pay my bills and all the things that you have to do at that, at that time. But I did sell a few more pilots, um, over the years. And then, um, I wrote some features and I was doing some ghostwriting for, for, um, books. So I was like, you know, just uh, knocking on every, you know, trying to push on every door that I possibly could. Um, I did, a, I had a lot of meetings in this era, this like sort of time period where I met executives that like, I'd write a script, I'd meet an executive off of that script, that executive would introduce me to someone who would introduce me to someone, and that third someone down the line would lead to an opportunity to develop a pilot. So it was a lot of, my um, brother-in-law actually said, a lot of your early career is like putting paint on the wall. So it's like coats of paint. So it's just, I was just like painting the walls and just like trying to make them the right color. 
So a lot of those years passed. Um, and then, and, and things were, you know, it, it, I wouldn't want to say like nothing was happening because in a way, like, even though I was able to have some early success and was able to sell pilots and, and had practice pitching, you know, I, you know, there's that 10,000 hour rule about writing. And so I think during that time I was getting my 10,000 hours in and I'm a far better writer now than I was then. And I look back even at things that sold at the time and, you know, there's a cringe factor. Um, but I, I definitely, um, you know, sort of feel like there's a broken, you know, it was definitely a broken road to where I am now, but I, I learned a lot during that time period. And um, also about the kind of projects I wanted to be doing and what really suited my style. So right around then, this probably took me all the way up to like 2015, right? In various like fits and starts. And I actually mentioned that I was doing some ghostwriting and I, um, through ghostwriting these different book proposals, I was able to um, sell my first novel. So I wrote a novel um, that's called Cherry, and it's about four teenage girlfriends who make a pact to lose their virginity before high school graduation. So sort of like a female American pie, but with more feelings than frozen yogurt. Um, and it's really about female friendship, which is like a lot of what I like to write about, um, boils down to female friendships and teenagers in that whole era. And so, um, Cherry had just sold and it was right after Cherry sold that I got a call on like a Friday night from someone who was a friend of a friend being like, I need a director for Cruel Intentions the musical. Are you, are you interested? And I'm, you know, a nineties kid. Like I said, I grew up with a theater background. Um, I didn't mention, but over, over those years of frustration, I was just like, I did something called put it up on stage where I was just literally taking my failed pilots that no one wanted to buy and doing them as one act plays in theater, like still, you know, from my teenage self to my 20 something self. And I had just done one, um, which I still think would make a great pilot, which was called sexed me maybe, which was right around the time that call me maybe was a big hit, <laughs> which was about a woman who got like mistakenly wrapped up in like a political sexting scandal. Like she got like accidentally sexted and didn't know the person who was sexting her, but then it happened to be a politician. And I just remember there were all those stories breaking at the time of like Anthony Weiner. And, you know, you'd see like the eight headshots of the women who had all been sexted. And I was like, who's the eighth woman? Like, what is she? So it was sort of that story about this <laughs> random girl and that sexed me maybe. And I just done it on stage. And that's why I got this call um, to be the director for Cold Engines Musical. And so I ended up then collaborating with um, someone who I did not know at the time, but is now one of my best friends and frequent collaborators named Jordan Ross. And so we ended up basically redeveloping the Cruel Musical into what it is now. Um, and we started, it opened at the Rockwell um, table and stage, which I think just actually officially closed, which is which is sad. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear that that's another casualty of this era, but we did um, Cruel at the Rockwell and we ran for about six months and then through a lot of, you know, it's funny, like I said, I did all the traditional things, right? I did all the, 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 the water bottle tour, the networking meetings, the writing spec scripts, the meeting all the people, every connection. And then it happened to be this like little show at a bar that I like didn't even tell my agent and manager that I was doing <laughs> that ended up being the thing that like just really catapulted me to another level in my career. And so through that, I was able to, a lot of doors opened and we were able to sell the Cruel Intention, Cruel Intentions as a TV pilot along with Roger Cumble, who wrote and directed the movie. And Jordan and I pitched him a take on, on um, you know, Cruel TV, which became a pilot for NBC, which we actually got to produce. And 
I sold a pilot to, in that same little era, I sold a pilot to CBS called Squad Goals um, with Ryan Seacrest producing. Um, and that was when, and then the Cruel musical continued to take off and we ended up doing it in New York. I directed it off Broadway and we ran for six months off Broadway. And then we just did a national tour actually. And we had just, um, we were just ready to start licensing the show so that like anybody in any theater across America could do the show. And last year around this time, there were, you know, 10 theater, the first 10 theaters lined up to license the show. And of course, um, you know, coronavirus, but I hope on the other side of this, that people will be able to license Cruel Musical. Um, we licensed it to producers in the UK and they did it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So that was super cool. Um, and I uh, got to go see it at the, at the Edinburgh Theater Festival, which is one of my favorite theater festivals. Um, but like I said, that, um, that era, like the Cruel Musical really just opened a lot of doors. And since then, I guess right before Cool Musical, like I'd written pilots, you know, like I said, for Freeform, for MTV. Um, I'd sold, you know, different, a lot of different production companies. But after that 2015, things really started taking off. So I, I sold, a, I wrote a pilot for NBC, ABC, Sci-Fi, um, and then landed on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which is also a full circle moment for me because my friend and mentor, Austin Winsberg, who created Zoe's, is somebody that I've known all the way since I was back in high school writing those one-act plays because I won um, a few national playwriting contests, uh, like uh, through the Blank Theater um, Festival. I don't know if anyone knows about the Blank Theater Company, but they do, they have a Young Playwrights Festival and they do great work. Um, and they, um, every year, pick about 15, I think, one-act plays to get professional productions. And mine, I got, I won two years and Austin was my mentor at one of those um, one of those years, and so we'd kept in touch over the years. And um, you know, he's been an incredible you know source of um, just lots of you know writing knowledge. And he actually mentored me on a script that I wrote um, before that. And so it just became this full circle moment where our love of theater and musicals and everything combined. And he wrote this brilliant pilot for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And I remember pretty early on, he mentioned it to me. And I'm really fortunate that he hired me to write on the first season. And I had a great experience. I got to spend um, a, a pretty substantial amount of time up in Vancouver, um, helping to produce the show. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to go this season because there's a two week quarantine into Canada. So I did miss out on that. And we, you know, first season, we had a traditional writer's room. And then this season, our Zoom, our room was all a Zoom room, as all the rooms were. So that's where I find myself now, um, having just finished my second season on Zoe's and, you know, working on new projects and development and my second novel and, you know, things that are both the same, but also different as to like where I've been before. So that's the, awesome. that's me. The journey. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a wild story you have. Uh, <laughs> lots of turns. That's epic. Thank you. Yeah. In some ways, it's like, I feel like there's some repeating themes, which I appreciate. Um, I feel like I'm, you know, some people, I, like I said, I knew what I wanted to do from age, you know, 10, age 15. And I think I always sort of romanticized, like the person even when we got in college age, who like didn't know and was going to like, explore lots of different things and like find their passion. I think because I was exactly the opposite. Like I knew my passion. I, I still feel like I know my passion. And so I'm very feel fortunate 
to still feel the same way about writing that I did, you know, in the beginning. Um, but it's, uh, it's frustrating. It's hard. It's, it's the kind of thing my dad likes to say, like, if you could see yourself doing anything else, you might want to do that. So I do think about that sometimes, but, uh, I don't think at this point there's anything else that I <laughs> would want to do. So here I am. Yeah. And you're good at it too. So I <laughs> appreciate you. that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Can we talk about some of the the process on Zoe? For instance, how much time does the room spend breaking an episode? How long does each writer have to turn around the script, et cetera? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, it's just, uh, I don't, I guess things might have been a little bit different this season because of the Zoom room. I'm sort of, I feel like I'm like, with COVID brain, like I can barely remember what like season one was like in comparison, but just like to speak about what season two was like that we just completed. Um, so we would, the whole room, and it was an incredible room of writers. I feel like I would want to start just by saying that I cannot say that enough from Austin. Everyone on staff was so talented, so wonderful, so warm. Like it was really a great um, mix of people. And I think, you know, I've heard that that's rare, but I've been lucky just in working on Zoe's to only have like our first season staff was incredible and our second season staff was incredible. So I've just been lucky to sort of get to work with such talented people. And so you put all those brains together and Austin came into the season with a very clear um, blueprint for what he wanted to, to, where the story, what he wanted the story to go. And he knew, um, he knew the end of the season, which I will not spoil, but he knew it walking into the room. So, you know, there's certain things that you map out and he kind of gave us all his benchmarks and all his ideas. And we knew we had 13 episodes, which is nice to know, because you can sort of start breaking, you know, where things land. Um, and, um, you know, in the beginning you know, of the season, we spent a lot of time just talking about big picture arcs and just characters and where we want the journey to sort of take the characters. And so that, that takes a few weeks. And then once you kind of crystallize that, then you start breaking it down by episode. So it's like, what's the journey of each episode um, and, and where you want characters to be. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's exact, like some episodes take longer to break, some are, some are easier. And so I'd say it takes, you know, a couple weeks to break an episode, um, you know, once when you really get into it. And then the process would be um, that we would, break it in really broad strokes. And then right around that time, it was pretty clear who was writing each episode. And so some staffs are different, some, but in, in Zoe's, you know, somebody was the writer of every episode and, and obviously shepherded it and became the voice of that episode. Um, but it is a collaborative art. So like everyone's sort of involved in the whole, in the whole thing. And that's what is so fun about writing in a writer's room versus when you're just writing a pilot by yourself and you have no one to like beat a joke with, like, having, you know, 10 great brains, um, I think everybody contributed to every, you know, episode. But at the same time, then I, I can totally tell, you know, who is the writer, like who put their spin on on certain things. And I think um, I wrote the eighth episode, uh, which is the second one back from the break. And I think there are certain things that um, if you know me or you know Cool Musical, like you will just, you'll just know, like this is, this is very me, uh, which is wonderful. And then at the same time, there's incredible jokes and things Austin wrote and, and, and stuff in the episode that is just the benefit of working on such a, such a good show. So once an episode gets broken, you do a story area document, um, which sometimes is an actual document for us this season, because 
it's a second season show and their comfort with Austin, um, he would just pitch it verbally to the network in the studio. And so he'd get, we would write it like a traditional document, but he would just pitch it orally and then he'd get their, you know, any notes, but usually that was pretty, pretty simple um, process. And then you write an outline and, you know, at that point in the room, we had certain specific systems, which I won't bore you with, but the way that we like, the way you do an outline, like there's a vernacular within the room and the way Austin's preferences of what he wanted to see in an outline and, you know, a lot of things um, that might be interesting to a viewer or a fan, you know, every episode is is about Zoe. It's Zoe's extraordinary playlist. So I felt like we were always at our best when we were trying to figure out what's happening to Zoe and where her head's at and what's her journey. So a lot of the time that was where the outlines really stemmed from. And then you break it down like pretty specifically. Our outlines were around 13 pages, 14 pages. So, you know, you don't get into all the jokes and all the dialogue, but you do have some in an outline and you do have a lot of specificity. And, you know, there's not, I think the hardest step is the outline writing. Like I, I think, especially on Zoe, like it was, they were such well-written outlines and such, so they'd gone through the system of our writer's room so many times that by the time that you went off to script, you know, there, there was still a lot of work to be done, but it, not a lot of exploration to be done. Like we'd really kind of kick the tires and that's different. Some shows, showrunners want you to surprise them. Some showrunners want to bring you something that you don't already know. Not in this case. It was very, want to stick to that. Like, don't deviate is something we would say. Um, and you have about a week, uh, you know, a week to do the, the script off of the outline. But that would also include two weekends. So, you know, and if you needed a little more time, I think a, a good adage of writing um, for TV is always like, unless the cameras are rolling and you need to it needs to be done tomorrow. It's, you know, you'd rather have it right than have it fast. So we always try to get it right. Um, and then once you did a pass, sometimes you'd get notes or sometimes just right away the room would do a pass. So we would literally put it up on the computer in the whole Zoom room. People would pitch jokes and, you know, if there, if anything wasn't making sense or beating dialogue or, you know, if, if certain scenes like, oh, now that we see it, like this is repetitive or whatever, you know, so you get everybody's brain and then um, Austin would always do a pass. And sometimes as a, the writer, you do it with Austin or, or if, it was not a, if it was not so much heavy lifting, sometimes he'd just do it on his own. And then you have a table read and we did all our table reads on Zoom this year, which was really fun. Um, they, were, they were in person, obviously last year in Vancouver and the writers room would always Zoom in, which was funny because it seems like pre-Zoom, but they would always just sort of have like a camera and then the writers were up on the TV but this time everybody was on Zoom and that actually was super fun. And wow. uh, I meant, like I mentioned, I have a one-year-old daughter. And so she like got to come to a lot of the table reads, <laughs> which is cute. Uh, you know, she'd be crawling around while we were, while we were doing it. So that was really fun for me as like a working mom. And then after the table read, there's always another pass and there's notes and, you know, there's always, I think I might've missed in the process. Like you get notes from the studio, you get notes from producers and you get notes from the network it's a uh, it's a lot of rewriting I would say and then there's no you know stuff gets rewritten in production stuff gets rewritten on set so it's a lot it's a lot uh I know you mentioned you're experiencing quarantine brain but from what you do remember uh mm -hmm. what would you say are the differences working on zoom or do you have any advice navigating zoom integrating new people I'm I'm currently experiencing a zoom room so oh, I'm nice for uh wisdom from people who've done it and what they, how they feel about it. Yeah. So I, 
I think Zoom rooms are wonderful in some ways, but they're very exhausting. Like they're so draining. And I'm sure anyone that's spent any time on Zoom this year knows that Zoom is just tiring. There's lots of like reasons for that. Um, one thing I would recommend is the blue light glasses, which I'm wearing. I wear glasses normally. Um, and so I like highly, people are like, do they work? But you do have yours. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I find like, it's such a big difference for me. Um, and also like we, we learned some tips that some of the writers in the room did apparently, like, I don't know where this comes from, but if you turn off your self view, um, if you turn off your self view, it's supposed to be like less tiring because your eyes like automatically go to yourself. So if you take that away, um, it was funny. I was texting one of the other writers on the show. I like saw a tweet. It was like, I think it was something like Stanford University. Don't quote me because I am probably messing up what study it was, but it was like, here are some tips. And it was like, turn off your self view. And then it was like, minimize your screen. And if you can turn off your computer. And the tweet was like, did they just create the phone call? <laughs> it was literally like, turn your Zoom into a phone call and you will be less tired. So yeah, I think... I think the key, I don't know, I don't have a magic, um, I don't have any magic. I think it was very tiring, um, which I think everyone would agree. But I, it's hard for me to judge because I also had a baby. So I don't know if it was Zoom or a baby, that, like, or the pandemic. Like, take your pick of what was tiring. I think everything together. Right. <laughs> special circumstances there. Yeah. yeah, but it's, but I think under the best of circumstances, you know, even if you are well rested, Zoom is exhausting. And I just, you know, just try to take it easy. I, you know, I, um, when you're writing on a, on a room, like, you know, there's, um, I, I, you, you should, I always try to focus on the work and not really worry about other projects or other development or, or whatever. But I would say during the first season, I just had more time for my own writing and whether it was something I was trying to sell or just even like for fun or, you know, even for reading a book or whatever, like, I was, I had to cut down on a lot of that. So I think that really helped at some point, like halfway through the Zoom room of just realizing, you know what, like this is what I'm doing and just giving my 100% focus to it, I think helped my my tired, which just to be clear, always 100% focus. But, you know, in when you do have downtime, it, it's easy to be like, oh, let me work on this spec thing I'm working on or whatever. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't as easy to do that this time around. So um, Zoe does has a lot of heavy topics, yes. um, terminal illness and suicide and all of that. So uh, I was wondering for those topics, like how do you research them and how do you go about learning more about these topics? Uh, great question. Um, well, I think you may know this, but the, the premise of the show is based on Austin's real life experience with his father. So, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we did have an expert um, in, you know, the process of losing a loved one to that disease. So specifically in the first season, um, specifically in the first season, you know, a lot of, a lot of the sh what's in the show is drawn from his real life experience. Um, going through the illness. And then in the second season, a lot of it is he's drawing on his real life experiences with grief. And it's interesting because, you know, we, there's no coronavirus in the Zo world of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And that was a decision Austin made like immediately. And I'm so glad he did. I think that that was my instinct too, is just like, it's a magical world. And, 
you know, and, and it's hard, you know, some shows I totally understand like a Grey's Anatomy or something that's incorporating, you know, you're in a hospital, you know, or this is us, which is cor incorporating coronavirus. And I get it. Like in some ways, practically speaking, it makes it easier to film, right? Because your character, your actors get to wear masks. Like there's certain super practical reasons that you would include the coronavirus. But for a show like Zoe's, I think it's 100% the right call to not, like you said, we're dealing with so much heaviness that it just felt like we didn't need that. But at the same time, we're dealing with grief and we're dealing with loss and we're dealing with life not going the way you want it to. So in a way, I feel like we were kind of dealing with, at least through Zoe and the Clark family, like some of the trauma that a lot of us are experiencing through, you know, coronavirus. So that was really interesting. So I think a lot of people had real life moments to draw from. And, you know, a lot of people in the writer's room, you know, you share, writer's rooms are very, um, you know, can be very personal places and people shared, you know, their real life experiences and um, their own losses and their own grief, you know. So I think just drawing on people's real life experiences, um, episode six, which is the last one, I know you haven't seen it yet, but it, it deals a lot with Simon's experience um, in particular, uh, being a black man in a white world, which is a song he sings in that episode, and then the tech world, and just in general, and that, you know, came out of our writer's room started in June, and so we were having some very heated, intense discussions, as many people were, on the heels of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and watching the protests, and, you know, so we had the, we were having the discussions in the writer's room that I think a lot of people were having in a lot of different venues, and and, you know, I think, I think that Simon's story may have gone in, in that direction anyway, but certainly, um, you know, what was going on in everyone's consciousness um, in current events certainly accelerated it. And then having writers like um, my friend and fellow writer, um, Zora Vikangaga, who wrote that episode, you know, he was able to draw on a lot of his experiences being a black man, being a black writer, sometimes the only black voice in a room. And as, and we also turned to John um, who plays Simon for his own experience and he lent a lot of, and I think there's even certain phrases and, and the way he spoke that ended up in the script and had words that Simon said that really came from John's experience. And that was also true of, you know, other episodes, like in the first season, the episode that has to do with Mo's experience in church, um, I know came from a conversation Alex had had with the writers of that episode in the writer's room, just talking about his personal experience. And so I think a, um, a lot when, you know, whenever you have someone that's experienced something specific and lends itself to a character story, it's always, it's always wonderful when you can, you can use that uh, as part of the authenticity of the work. Yeah, and I've heard that your writer's room has um, a lot of writers who've faced trauma and all sorts of things. So having that all in the writer's room and talking about that constantly, uh, how is that? How does that affect the writer's room? How do you feel like that's different? That's interesting. I don't know, like, I don't know if I would characterize it as as like everybody in the room having experienced trauma, I think there was sort of a good mix of like, um, and this sort of speaks to the tone of the show, sort of comedy writers and, and drama writers, and not that a comedy writer cannot have experienced trauma, but I think there was, there is a lightheartedness in the room and there is, you know, in the way that the show likes to break up the heaviness with, with jokes and with singing. I think that there are like a few of the writers I can think of in particular who would bring a lot of the jokes to the table and a lot of, you know, the levity, like that was sort of true of their personality in the room as well. So, so that was nice. I think, you know, it's, I think with any show you, you work on or any project you work on, if you're tapping into something personal, 
um, which a lot of times you are in whatever capacity and that's why you're writing the project or why you got hired to write the project. You know, it can be, um, it can be exhausting <laughs> emotionally. It can be uh, something that you kind of have to work through. I mean, a more lighthearted example is the book I wrote, Cherry, which is about four girls in high school. And it's, uh, you know, that's a lot of what's in the book is fiction completely. And a lot of it is drawn, you know, from my high school experiences. And so I wouldn't, I am lucky to have had a, a mostly very positive high school experience, but even just the, the act of writing something down and like sort of giving it to another medium and taking your story and making it accessible to other people, you know, you kind of have to just embrace that, that you're putting something out in the world in a way that you no longer control it. And I remember I had some big feelings about like certain things of like my high school experience that were kind of going to be like, not that they were going to be done forever, but I was going to sort of release them into this book. And so I think there's things that when we, you know, I think for Austin, when he writes about his story with his dad, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he's also kind of releasing some of the story and releasing, you know, some of it into the work, right? Um, so I think that that's true for for other, um, other stories. And there's one story that's, uh, I think, that's coming up in the second half of the season that I don't want to spoil, but uh, it has to do with mental health stuff that is in, important to me. And I think that there were uh, a couple writers in particular who had experienced certain things in their life that were able to, to be taken um, and used as part of this story. So, you know, that's another example. I'm sorry, I can't be more specific, but I think you'll know when you see it. We'll find out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I love that you balance these topics uh, and story and humor and songs all in one. Um, do you find it hard or easy to, to I, like the angle is, you know, she, uh, Zoe sees these musical numbers. Um, is it easy or hard to include these musical numbers? Like is, does everyone have a musical background? Oh, um, great question. No is the short answer. Everyone has a musical background. Um, certainly, you know, a lot of it starts with Austin and he does have an incredible musical background and um, has, you know, written a musical that was on Broadway and, you know, at least a theater background. Um, but I think everyone who works on the show, you know, has a love of music. So that's a good starting place. But uh, yeah, look, there's a very specific style and a very specific way that music is used. And um, you know, Austin created that over the first two seasons along with the writer's room, but I think it sort of came from a specific vision. Um, another important piece about the musical process has to do with the choreography, and that has to do with Mandy Moore and her associate choreographers who are so incredible. And that, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, it's definitely a back and forth collaboration, but I would say the storytelling and the way that music is used, you know, it certainly starts in the writer's room, but I think Mandy always has her feelings and, and notes and sometimes we'll push back on certain things. And, you know, it's one thing for us to have an idea. Oh, and then Simon's just going to dance around. <laughs> and she's like, okay, but you know how? And one, one piece that we always try to connect to every song, um, as Austin would say it, is that every song has a conceit. So it's not just then Simon dances around. It's there's something specifically attached to what's happening while the song is happening. A good example of that is episode two, season one is Sucker, right? Like um, Skylar Max is singing to Zoe while she's trying to give a speech to the programmers on her first day. So it's not just Skylar singing, it's, or Max singing, it's, it's Max singing as Zoe is trying to function. So that's an example of a conceit where it's, it's not just 
singing, it's singing in a narrative, singing in a in something that brings some extra oomph to the storytelling. And some songs, frankly, are more just for enjoyment. We just want, you know, Alex to sing the song, so he's gonna sing the song. But for the most part, I think the, the songs work their best when they really drive story, when they really reveal something about a character, when they really take a turn in a story, you know, all the things that are kind of classic storytelling. Um, but sometimes songs are very easy. Like there's a few, like I'm just thinking about my episode in, like in particular, there was one song that was literally the first song Austin pitched. It is in the final cut. There's another song. I, we probably listened to 200 songs, you know, and like the one that's in there, I don't even know if it was the first choice, but it's great. But it just, it just, there's just a process. So sometimes it's really easy. And sometimes it is really not easy to find the right song. And then not just finding the right song, but the song has to clear almost always the song cleared, but sometimes you know, there were certain artists that were super difficult to get or, you know, just we would stay away from in general or, and then, you know, the other thing is trying to have balance and you want different kinds of songs and we don't want to use the same artist two times in one episode, or if we just use a song, if, you know, if two songs sounded too similar, um, I think that was actually, that sort of explains why one of the songs had so many options was because it was very, the one that we kept landing on was so similar to another song in the episode. So, you know, those are, that's another problem that, that songs kind of get um, disqualified from, from use. So. Is there a structure like or a format, like how many, we need to have like this amount of songs per episode or yeah. is it? So we would try to have, I would say a sweet spot is around like five songs is you, there's some episodes that only have four. I would say five would be like the baseline four or five, but some, a lot of episodes end up having six. Um, there's a few coming up that have, you know, like I think the, the, the bigger one, bigger episode nine, I think has eight songs. Um, you know, the finale I think has seven, you know, there's big, there's some big song episodes coming. Um, so that um, there are exceptions that can be made, but I think five or six, five is kind of the baseline. And, and that, you know, there's six act, we write a six act format. So, you know, sometimes there ends up being six where there's one in every act. That's another, that's another like challenge you might not think about with the songs. Like you can't have all the songs in the first act. Like we need to spread out the storytelling. So sometimes in like the jigsaw puzzle of the writer's room, you know, you'd, you'd want for a certain story, it makes sense to have a song in act two, but then there's three stories with songs in act two, you know, you have to, you have to, spread it out. So that's just another reality of the network format and the, and the act breaks. And, but even if it was streaming and there were no act breaks, you'd still want, you know, you wouldn't want all your songs right in a row. That would not be as satisfying. Yeah. Do you have a favorite musical number of all the songs? Oh my gosh. That's a hard question. I don't have, I do not have one favorite. That would be impossible. Um, okay. I probably have one favorite like per actor, you know, I have, there's a lot of um, songs uh that i that i love um i think one that's like particularly gratifying just for me like as a writer i wrote um episode 106 last year which was um zoe's extraordinary night out uh which was simon jessica's engagement party and in that one max sings 500 miles i will walk 500 miles mm -hmm. and that was one of my favorite that's like a personal favorite musical number because i think it was something that i really i pushed for creatively and then it was kind of a disaster in production. Just like we were out at night. It was, it was a one, you know, it was one take at night in the rain in Vancouver with a hundred extras. It was just a very big scale and a lot went on behind the scenes 
that was stressful and wonderful. And I'm very, very proud of, of that moment. And I think it's something that, um, I think has stuck with fans too, which is just cool for me, like in terms of, you know, the Max Zoe storytelling, that was kind of a important moment for them. So for those reasons, that's probably a soft spot, but, um, but I like in any given episode, you know, there's so many that I, that I love. Um, so that's hard to pick. <laughs> Do you know if when conceiving the show, Austin ever considered making it original music numbers or was it always jukebox? Oh, funny. You should ask. No, I think it was always pop music. That's like part of, I think that's part of what is so um, joyful about it is like, you know, the song in a context, whatever context, you know, the song. And now you're seeing us use it in a different sort of way. I think that adds a little bit of like joy to the process. There is an original song coming up. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but in my episode, there's original, there's an original song, um, which I'm very excited about. And I actually got a co-writing credit on because it was in my episode. So um, I got to, you know, Austin was definitely his brainchild and I, I got to help. And um, along with um, Harvey Mason Jr. who does all the music and arrangements, he did, he did the music for the, the song and so that's in episode eight is I think that's the first original song that's going to be in Zoe's which I'm excited about sometimes we sometimes we joke in the writer's room when we need a very specific type of song like love songs are easy like mad songs are easy like there's a lot of songs that fall into certain buckets but if you need like a like I'm regretful of this decision I made song like it can be difficult to find the right one <laughs> So sometimes we're like, we just have to write a song and then use it in this like specific moment. Um, or there's times where you find the right song, but the lyrics don't, like it sounds right, but then the lyrics are wrong. And we're like, ah, we could just like change the lyrics. So uh, I think sometimes it would help our storytelling if you could write songs, but, um, but I'm very excited about the original song that is coming. I hope, I hope people like it. We'll let you know our thoughts. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, you have a favorite episode or episodes that you've mm. done? Um, again, there's like great, I like, that's hard. That's hard to pick. I feel like there's a lot of, of episodes that um, I really love. I think one of my favorites that stands out is episode eight from season one, um, which is always extraordinary glitch just because I was up on set for a little bit of the filming of that one. And um, Jane just did such an extraordinary job. So no pun intended, but she, that was just really, I think, some of her best work. And I, I loved that. Um, but I think, um, I think that might be one of my favorites just as a, like a fan of, you know, but, um, and then thinking about, you know, I think the finale last year, like American Pie, which ended the season, like if, if I was going to pick another, you know, it's almost not fair to like, be like, that would be my favorite musical number. Cause it was just so, so grand. Um, but that's, that was pretty special. And yeah. I felt like the way that that was done. Um, but there's, um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff coming up in the back of the season. Like, I'm excited. But I feel like, you know, I hope people, it seemed like there was a lot of positive reaction to what's been put out in the second season. But I think it, the season really hits a stride. And I think there's a lot of good stuff coming. And I, I think people will be pleasantly surprised about where it goes. We're excited to see it. <laughs> nice. Uh, so you do a ton of TV writing and you've written a novel and have another novel. Yes. So what's the difference between writing a novel and a TV show basically? Oh gosh, great question. Yeah, I've been I've been lucky to get to write like TV and also features and novel and theater. And so I think 
all four of those lanes are very different, but they're, they're like at the core, I sort of approach them all the same, which is who is the character? Why do we care about them? What do they want? What is the obstacle to what they want? You know, I think that the themes are all usually similar for me in terms of why I get excited about a project and then my process of actually writing. But, um, but it's sometimes you have to, like, I think there are certain times where I'll have an idea and I think, oh, this is going to be a feature. And then like, there was something I'm, I'm working on right now that I thought I'm actually writing with um, a co-writer and we had sort of been thinking about it as a feature and we had almost started writing it as a feature. And then we we're like, you know what, this should just be like a pilot. Like this really, like, this is a world that we'd want to live in for a longer time. And like, yes, there's a 90 minute version, but we would just so much rather get to do the 10 hour version. Right. So in a perfect world, let's just write. And so sometimes the, I think the subject matter um, dictates the form. Um, but I think, you know, for me, I really like getting to jump. It's easier for me to work on multiple projects if they're in different um, mediums. Like I think it's hard to, if I to work on multiple TV projects at once and we're kind of all in the same lane, but I actually like, it, it helps my brain to kind of switch from, you know, complete sentences to more dialogue to, you know, longer form. So I think that, um, you know, there's inherent differences in terms of structure and, you know, obviously format, but I think I just try to, I, I approach all the writing the same way. So I think there's more similarities for me personally. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, and then it looks like you are working on Death is My BFF. Yes. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's a project I've been I've been involved with for for a while now. Um, it's based on a Wattpad novel. Um, if you guys have ever checked out Wattpad, it's a place where people can sort of self-publish um, stories on the internet. It's kind of like a, a like like a literary YouTube sort of is a way to describe Wattpad, but it's a community and um, people you know write novel like write stories, write novels, and people can sort of comment and, and there's feedback, you know, involved. And I think, um, so the Death is My BFF began as a novel on Wattpad and it's, it's a book that then spawned a whole series of books and, you know, has the whole series overall has had a hundred million reads or something astronomical, right? By, like that. So the world and the characters was created by a very talented um, younger writer who, um, was, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to meet through this process and she optioned her story through Wattpad to Sony um, Pictures and I've um, worked on some projects with Sony before. So it was what you'd call an open writing assignment, which means they had the IP, they had the book and they were looking for a writer. So I met with them and I sort of pitched my take, like, here's what I would do if you hire me. And they said, great, we would like to hire you. And so I came up, you know, sort of fleshed out that take into a pitch so a full tv pitch and then we went out and pitched um, a few different networks including sci-fi and sci-fi ultimately ended up buying it uh which is which was awesome and sort of i don't necessarily think of myself as a genre writer but this is a genre um project that's sort of in the vein of like a buffy or a twilight um it's in that sort of world uh centered around a teenage girl so again like that's what i could sort of hook into um, and it's, it's really, it's a really awesome world that, that Kat created and I got to flesh out and I, um, ended up writing the pilot for sci-fi and then just this past fall, um, sci-fi ended up 
um, passing on the project more for like, I would say timing than anything else. And I think also having some things to do with just what sci-fi is doing internally. And so that means technically what that means is that the project's in what you call turnaround, which means that now Sony as a studio controls the property again. So even though we sold it to sci-fi, they paid me to write it, they've sort of relinquished their rights. And so now Kat um, extended her deal with Sony. And so they're in the process of um, trying to figure out, okay, so what, what does this look like? Is there a, is there a lead actress we can attach? Is there, is, a, is there a director that we want to bring in on the project? And so putting some different pieces together and I'm hopeful that they will be able to. And then once that happens, we'll go back to, you know, different streaming services are honestly like, even though it's just two years later, there are service streaming services that exist now that didn't exist when we were working on it before, like Peacock or HBO Max, you know, they didn't even, they weren't even up and running at the time when we were talking to people and even places like Netflix or Amazon or Apple, they all have different leadership. So this, that's just like a reel about the industry, you know, things are always kind of shuffling. So um, I'd say at the moment, like literally it's in what we call turnaround, which basically just means we're, you know, sort of regrouping. But um, I, I'm hopeful that Sony will be able to put the pieces together and then and then figure out what to do with it. Nice. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very fun. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, so I hope that it comes together. Uh, we are running low on time, so maybe we'll close with one or two more questions. Sure. Um, so do you have any favorite writing advice or books? Yes, I do. Um, my favorite book about writing is Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird, um, which I don't know if you guys have read. It's actually about novel writing. So interesting, like when you ask about different forms, but the, the subtitle for Bird by Bird is Advice on Writing and Life, which I just like love that just like subtitle. And Bird by Bird is an interesting title, but she explains why in the book. And I just, it's a book that I've read many times and I highly recommend it no matter what form of writing you're writing. It's an incredible resource. If you're writing a novel, certainly, but even TV writing, feature writing, it's just general advice. And sometimes I find like if I'm writing something and I get stuck, I'll just start reading bird by bird. Like I'll just jump back in and I'll reread re it again. And then inevitably, you know, I don't, I usually don't make it all the way to the end. Like by the time I'm halfway through or I'm, I'm like, okay, now I'm like, it regenerates. So I highly recommend that book as a place of, um, a place to go to. And one um, adage that she says in the book, which I have highly adopted, her like whole, her whole strategy can basically be boiled down to shitty first drafts. And it's just like releasing you from having to be good right away. Cause I think that that's something that keeps people from writing like a fully written anything is better than a half written anything um period so I think that that and that's hard to learn you know it's even if you're on a deadline even if you have somebody waiting for your draft um you know you just it's not as perfect on the page as it was in your head and so that can stymie your whole process so I literally like I was just working on something I just finished a new spec pilot that I'm really excited about um, that's set in 1999 in the music industry. And it's something I've been working on for a long time and it's a musical elements and I'm so excited, but I was trying, I needed to finish it because I, people were waiting on it and I literally had to write down on a piece of paper and it, it just, it said, I wrote, I just wrote, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be written. And it was just like, that's it. And every time I would get frustrated, I would just look at it. So I'm, you know, that's a lot, I think, into my brain about like how I write. And probably the other piece of advice I would add to that is, 
you know, there are certainly some writers, especially novelists that, you know, they write however many thousand words a day or they they write for this many hours. And I'm just, I'm not that kind of writer. I'm more of an ebb and flow kind of writer, which is why I like, you know, freelancing. I like working on different projects. There are some times where I will write 16 hours a day for a week and then I won't write for a month. You know, it's just it, like, there's times where I'm on a deadline and I have to finish and I do. And then I like, sometimes it's not a writing mode. So I think that's important too. I think sometimes some of my friends beat themselves up because they didn't write today. And I think as a professional, you have to learn the difference between, you know, just being in a bad mood and being in a mood where you're not going to write. Cause you have to, you know, we all have to work through our bad moods, but I do think there's a time where it's just, it's not a writing day. And like, that's okay. Like every day it does not have to be a writing day. And that's, you know, just giving yourself permission to do that. I think is important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you talked about selling uh, pilots before Zoe. Can you talk about, um, do you have any advice in selling pilots and advice in pitching? Yeah, I love pitching, which is interesting because I, again, I'm really not a performer and I don't like being on stage. And I, some of my writer friends like think about pitching as performing and I just, I don't um, because that would scare me. But I, I think that there's, um, you know, I think one thing that is important and I think it's, it's important in anything, um, you know, you have to be enthusiastic about the things that you're working on and pitching and writing. And, you know, I think that that always helps like in a pitch, like I can't, I'm learning better now. You know, I can't, you can't fake it. And sometimes look, a job is a job. And sometimes if you have an opportunity, you know, you know, there's ways to find a way to get excited about anything, but if you can, and if you're choosing, you know, what to spend thousands of hours working on, you know, just to make sure that you're really passionate about the subject matter and that you have a real reason for wanting to tell the story because, you know, 20 drafts in, you know, a hundred notes close later, like it's going to be a far cry from where you started. So, you know, if, if, if your excitement for a story is, has to do with like a flashy moment or like a line of dialogue or this or that, like it's gonna, I think you, it's easy to get disillusioned. But if it's really at its core, like I'm interested in a dynamic between sisters, like, okay, that's what it's about. And then like everything else will change, but at least you're still writing about this dynamic that you find interesting. Um, so when you, in terms of pitching and then, you know, I just, I just always try to, um, I just try to come from a place of excitement. And I think that that, I think that that shows. Uh, and I think that that's why I've been able to get some of the jobs that I've and I'm working on a pitch right now for a movie project that I'm super excited about. And, you know, I just, I think, I think they know when you're faking it. Right. So, I mean, I'm sure there's writers out there that can fake it better than I can, but it's nice to be able to be like, this is a dream and I would like to write for you. Um, and I'm not a very good actor. So that's, it's either convincing or it's, or it's not real, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, but I think, I think, you know, there's, there's lots of resources online and, and places to Google, you know, in terms of if you're looking for a format of your pitch, like that's kind of out there, but I, I always like to start with why I'm enthusiastic about something. And then also why I'm the right writer for the job. Cause I think in a scenario where you are going up against other writers, look, there's enough work for everyone. I'm, I'm definitely, well, look, it's hard. Uh, work is hard, but I would say, you know, I think it's important to celebrate other people's successes. Like I think like you guys have a strong writing community and I, you know, have a, my writer friends, like I, you want to be able to just wholeheartedly apl applaud anytime somebody has success. Cause I feel like there's a rising tides lift all, you know, ships mentality. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, if there's one writer that's going to get hired for the job, you know, you do want to put your, your foot forward and explain, you know, why, it, why it's you or, or at least what's unique about you that can really, you know, show up in, in, in your work on a certain project if you're the one that's hired. Awesome. Yeah, I heard the why me, why now yeah. Um, approach. Yeah, why me, why now? Because there's, because even if it's, even if it's not, you know, an open writing assignment is that you could be pitching against other people, but even if, even if it's just an original idea and you're just like going into a production company and, you know, there's still a why me, why now? Because it's like, why? And maybe you've had ideas that have stuck with you. And that's also a why, because, you know, you can't, you can't shake them. Um, there's one project that I've literally been developing since 2009. And I like, I still think about it and it's still something that I hope to sell one day. And it'll be one of those stories that's like, you know, all these years later, um, it stuck with you. But I think that that's, I think there's something to be said for the projects that stick around. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We have one more question. Uh, yeah. what is one of your favorite jokes, either your own or someone else's? Oh, just jokes in general? Yeah, favorite yeah. joke. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, wow. There, I mean, sure. if you're not a performer, yeah. it's hard to have jokes on hand. That's more of a performer kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so funny because where my brain just went is like, because I've been watching a lot of Sesame <laughs> Street lately because I have a one-year-old. <laughs> and it was, they did a joke that is just like, I, it's like funny because it's a joke that I remember thinking was so funny as a kid. But it's like still funny to me, which is just like it's a knock knock. All right, knock knock. Yes, yeah, who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting, Interrupting cow. cow. <laughs> Anyways, my daughter got a kick out of it. She's one. I still think it's funny. Yeah. If that tells you anything about my comic abilities, that is my favorite joke. I um, think it says your comic abilities are spot on because that joke <laughs> is hilarious, no matter what age. Doesn't get old. Yeah, I knew the punchline, but I still laugh before it. But they actually like they did it, whatever. I mean, me being like Sesame Street's brilliant. Clearly, it's brilliant. But it was like they did this thing where the they did the joke, but then the cow literally just kept interrupting segments. And I was like, this is this is smart, smart job, Sesame Street. Good job. Yeah, the great running guy. I'm in a I'm awesome. in a you know I'm gonna be watching a lot of Disney movies and. Elmo and in a new in a new chapter. Little Mermaid two very underrated. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. So was Cinderella Cinderella three as well. Oh my god, <laughs> I watched that like a month ago. I mean, this is so. great. This is great now. <laughs> Disney Plus comes in handy. Our next podcast will be like be what to watch with your kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. This is great. We had a blast. Yeah. We learned a lot. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I hope you guys enjoy the, the rest of the season. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Subscribe for more episodes and check out Sketches. Sketches written and performed by Deadline Junkies. Watch it at skedjes.com. Thanks for listening to the Deadline Junkies podcast.